Arrive and Thrive would like to begin by first acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land of which we recorded this podcast and extend our respect to elders, past, present and emerging. I have a monkey mind, which means I get distracted and lose my thoughts easily. So I'd like to talk to you about Notion, a productivity software that allows you to track projects and other cool stuff. I've been using Notion for about a year now and have loved the freedom it gives me in my business. I'm a proud Notion affiliate as it is my one-stop shop for the back end of my business and my brain when I'm not using my brain. Does that make sense? I didn't think so. (laughs) See what I mean by a monkey mind? I use Notion as a database and a way to track my programs, clients, and projects. If you're looking for a digital tool for your team, personal use, or business, you can check it out on our affiliate link in the episode description. Start today and get organized for tomorrow. Hello and welcome back to another episode. First and foremost, I want to express my deepest gratitude to each and every one of you for being part of our growing Arrive and Thrive career podcast family. That was a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) Your support means the world to me and I truly appreciate your valuable time and attention. If you're finding value in our content and haven't already done so, I want to invite you to hit that subscribe button and become a regular part of our community. Also feel free to leave a little review as well if you're that way inclined. Your subscription and review is a vote of confidence in what I do and it fuels my passion to deliver the best content possible to help you and others thrive in their career. To subscribe, simply click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform and you'll be in the loop with each new release. Now let's arrive and thrive together and have a little roar. Okay, team, we've got a very special guest today from our co-working space. Uh, his name is Dave Edwards. Dave, welcome to the Arrive and Thrive Career Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Ty. Stoked to have you on, mate. Yeah, uh, please introduce yourself um, to our listeners and what you do. Sure, yeah. As you said, Dave Edwards. Um, I grew up in the country in Victoria, uh, in Sale. Voted the most boring town in Australia a couple of times, I think. Um, and uh, couldn't wait to get out of there, really. And then I uh, moved up to Melbourne, um, went to university and started a career in the surveying industry. Yeah. Um, sort of uh, focused on uh, an air, a part of it called the hydrographic surveying, which is uh, underwater surveying. And that, um, that's taken me all over the place, um, worked all over the world, um, throughout Southeast Asia a lot, and uh, now I'm back home in, in uh, lovely Mornington and, uh, and enjoying life here. Mate, so much I want to unpack with you, especially uh, when we were having that brief conversation in the uh, getting coffees a couple of weeks back. Sure. Um, what drew you to uh, – I'm going to butcher this, this name too the, – the hydro was it hydrographic surveying? Yeah, so um, as a kid um, – uh, I've probably got my old man to thank for it. He, he loved taking me fishing. Yep. Uh, so he loved being out in the water in the Gippsland Lakes, offshore there, um, catching fish. And when I was at school, I guess, um, I realised I wanted to do something that was sort of working outside. I didn't want to be stuck in an office. Um, I was reasonably handy with maths um, and science. Um, and so when, um, you know, when the careers counsellor came to me and said, what do you want to do? I told him all that. And he said, I oh, considered being a surveyor. So yeah, it sounds like a pretty um, reasonable sort of job. Uh, surveyors do a whole lot of things. They, which I didn't know at the time, uh, they peg out subdivisions. Um, you know, control uh, in construction of high-rise towers and skyscrapers. Um, 
they work with satellites and, and they work underwater as well. I didn't know really any of that. Um, so ducked off to university uh, and um, and thought, yeah, this is, this is all right. I guess the sort of click moment came when I was sort of at my third year of university and sort of had a part-time job working for a land survey company in Melbourne. It was the middle of summer. I was about 38 degrees. I was out in north somewhere right up in the northern end of Melbourne pegging out subdivisions. The ground's rock hard and I'm banging in pegs there and I was like, <laughs> there's got to be something better than this, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I've got, got a couple of things. I was working outdoors. I was working with my hands, using my maths, but um, – there's got to be something better. And uh, and then I guess um, I think uh, in the final year of uni, I got an internship with the Port of Melbourne. They okay. had their own hydrographic surveying team here in Melbourne that maps all the all the shipping berths and shipping channels. Um, so that was sort of a couple of months over summer, much better than banging in pegs in North Reservoir or wherever I was. Um, and, uh, and, and, yeah, so sort of that was – then I finished uni and I thought, oh, that's uh, it's definitely a lot easier than banging in pegs and, and sounds good. So hey, after that, I, I sort of, I think, um, I think uh, in the old days, you know, pre-email, basically it was, uh, there was like a notice board at the university, you know, like an old-fashioned yep. notice board, yep, and yep. You know, finishing fourth or fifth year uni, and uh, notice of yellow post-it notes, sort of sitting on the thing, yep. saying, you know, who wants to um, do something different? Um, you want a career where you can travel, um, work offshore. Um, it's like, oh, that sort of sounds like me. Yeah. Uh, I knew a bit about it. There's a couple of other guys in university as well. They also applied for it. And I think three of us from the university all got a job um, working in Singapore for a company called Fugro. Wow. And, um, yeah, those guys worked in the offshore industry doing seabed mapping and, and construction offshore. And that was sort of what um, where, it, where it sort of started and then it went from there. Mate, what a sliding door moment with the yellow post-it note to like. Uh, yeah, there was a couple of couple of moments. One one was just banging in the pegs, right? I was just driving home, just covered in sweat <laughs> and dirt and dust, and I was like, oh, shit, this is got to do something better than yeah. this. I can't do this for the next thirty years. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And then when you so you've gone so you've moved from Sale to Melbourne, and then you've gone from Melbourne to Singapore for this opportunity in your fifth year or directly after. Uh, it was a fifth year, so I did five years of uni. Um, it was like a double degree, I think. So. Uh, Geomatics, which is used to be called surveying and, and environmental science, I think it was. Yep. Um, went to Singapore. The company, you know, the work was all offshore, so it wasn't actually in Singapore. You sort of sit there in Singapore for a couple of weeks. They train you up on yep. their equipment, what the hell was going on, um, and then they'd throw you on a boat, right, with a team of um, you know eight or ten other guys, and, and you might be, you know, installing pipelines. Or my first jobs were. Um, were surveying um, patches of seabed where they were going to do some drilling, make sure that you know, measure the depth and make sure the seabed was clear before drilling rigs came in. Yep. Uh, so yeah, like the first sort of first year I did uh, was was mostly um, you'd work offshore for uh, six weeks or two months, something like that. Um, on sometimes on on one boat, sometimes you'd just be thrown around between different jobs in different areas. I think the first jobs I worked on were in. Thailand and Vietnam, you know, yeah, pretty wow. pretty interesting places. Yep, especially for like you know twenty two year old kid coming yep. out of sail, pretty green. <laughs> yeah. um, and then after you'd done your two months sort of swing, you come back to Singapore and you could do what you want. Right, you had yep. basically like a month off, so you could stick around in Singapore and eat noodles and and drink beer, or you could go travelling. Yep, you come back to Australia and and like I said, there was I think there was three guys from our uni class, all all got into that career. Um, a couple of them, you know, decided they'd go back to Australia and chill out there. And me, I had my girlfriend. We 
travel around um, Asia and then come back, sort of check in for work a month later and yep. go and do it all again. Yeah, cool. And that cycle, like I'm assuming you get used to that and, and certain personalities are drawn towards that two months on, one month off, going yeah. from like offshore to onshore. That's right, you know, yeah. Working environments. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not for everyone, um, but it does, particularly when, you, when you're young and you don't have too many ties and responsibilities back home, you don't have kids and, mm. and things like that, it's a really good lifestyle. It gave me the opportunity to travel throughout Southeast Asia, I spent a lot of time in Singapore um, living and, and soaking up that culture there um, and learning a lot. So, yeah, it does. And then while you're offshore, you've got one job. Yep. You've got one task, one project to focus on. You don't have, you know, different emails coming in from different jobs. And so that's really like quite refreshing compared to, say, now where you've got, you know, 10 jobs or, or you know, 10 yep. different departments coming in and, and asking you to do stuff. So it's actually quite nice now to go offshore, although I don't do it anymore. Yep. When you do go offshore, you, you turn your computer off and you've got one task, one team to work with and, and one project Mm. Um, so yeah, it is a quite a good lifestyle, and it's quite clean lifestyle when you're offshore. You know, you're um, you're not partying. You, you're yep. working for twelve hours, and you're sleeping for twelve hours. You get, you get a lot of sleep. Yep. And you come back. You know, you might come out back after your two months a little bit worn out, missing your friends and family, uh, thirsty for beer. But um, but you know, you've you've you're not t- you're not really tired out. You've worked hard. Yeah. You've had a lot of sleep, a lot of rest, seen a few things. It's time for a spell and you, you know I've got a month off and, and I, can, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, cool. So a typical day would be like you start at like say 7 a.m., finish at 7 p.m. with like a break in yeah. between I'm, I'm assuming and then some downtime and then Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so when I started, which was um, yeah, 20, 25 years ago, yep. it was not quite the same as what it is now. Um, but if you're working on a big ship like I was in my early days, You'd be working, and it still is like this, you work 6 till 6 or yep. possibly 12 till 12. There's meals and things on board the ship. The ship's staying offshore for, for you know, two or three weeks at a time. Yep. So they've got cooks on board. Um, you'd be sharing a cabin. So when you're, when you're off, when you're not working, you, you might be sharing it with um, one other person or more likely back in those days three other people. So it might be a four-person cabin. Yep. Um, typically it's all pretty much all men or blokes back then. Yep. It's changed a bit now. Um. And, and when you were doing your 12 hours work, that, that's all you did. So what what I would be doing as a surveyor would be um, monitoring the position of the ship, all the sensors that they're towing, um, making sure they're not going to crash into the seabed or mm. a structure, um, making sure the data is recorded, is good quality. Yep. Um, and you typically, like I said, you'd be working in a team of about, um, say, six, six or seven people per shift. Yep. So you, you've got five or six other guys working there. You've got... Someone to cover you when you go downstairs for a, get a feed, get yep. some lunch, then you come back up. Sort of five thirty would come around at the end of your shift. The other guy who is going to replace you would come up. You'd have a little handover um, in front of the computers. You'd say what had happened in the last shift. You know this is what you've got to look out for. Blah blah blah. Yep. Um, he'd sort of take over. You'd sit with him for another half an hour. Then you disappear and go and get some food. And and after that, there wasn't really a whole lot to do, right? I didn't yeah. have Netflix, didn't have internet on board. You <laughs> no know, PlayStations, so, anything like that. <laughs> yeah, they had a couple, lots of Filipino karaoke DVDs oh. and things like that. <laughs> cool. Um, but um, you, you just take, like, you might take half a dozen books with you. Yep. And, uh, and you go back to your cabin, read a book. If you're like me, I'd read about two pages, then fall asleep. And, yeah. and you get in a good 10 hours sleep and then wake up in the morning, get your breakfast at five, you know, 5.30, go up and, and 
see the, the bloke who's just coming off shift, hand yep. over, then do it again, yeah. Yeah, cool, mate. And, you know, when you're saying like uh, measuring like the, the depth of the ocean, like surveying the seabed, how does that all work? Because um, I'm sure many people have like read about stuff being like in local residence here, like with the dredging of the bay when mm-hmm. all that occurred and things like that. Like what – yeah, how does that whole process work? Yeah, so most of um, most of the stuff that is used to measure things underwater and at sea – um, you use a lot of technology, which is which yep. is a cool part of the job, and something attracted me to it. Um, measuring anything under the water is mostly measured by sound. Yeah. So sound travels really well um, through water compared to light or, or other 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 things. So say like an echo sounder um, that we would use to measure the depth is is exactly the same as a fish finder on on my old man's fishing boat, right? Right. So it um, emits a, a sound. A certain frequency which goes down through the water column bounces off the seabed comes back up and the um the echo sounder transmits the sound that listens for when the return comes back and sound travels through seawater at a speed of about 1500 meters a second um so if you're in just say if you're in 1500 meters of water it would take a second for that sound to go down and hit the bottom and a second for that sound to come back up to the boat and the echo sounder records that travel time, says, okay, I sent it. It's waiting, waiting. Okay, two seconds later, the sound comes back. It converts that travel time um, time yep. to it to a distance because it knows that we know the speed of sound through the water column. So that uh, using acoustics um, or noise through water, you can, you can do lots of things. So you can measure the depth. You can also measure distance to another object. Right. Um, so you can have a you can send a, a sound to a Say a um, say a diver uh, who has a transponder on their helmet. That transponder will receive the sound and then send the sound back, send another ping back to the vessel. So we can measure um, how far away that diver is and, and where they are. And once you start doing that, then you can position anything underwater. You can tow things behind your vessel, or you can have remotely operated vehicles or autonomous vehicles that that fly down. If you know where that. Uh, object is mm. all the time then you can do it start to do a lot of things um so yeah there, there's it's it's basically using acoustics and and using acoustics in different ways to to map out the seabed yeah fascinating mate and is there been like moments where you're like whoa this is a lot deeper than we anticipated or is there like moments where you you send off that that echo um and it you know, there's been an interference. You kind of hang on a second. What's going on there? Like, I assume there's a bit of problem solving. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's the that's probably one of the most frustrating parts of the job, and also one of the most rewarding. Uh, the frustrating parts is things go wrong, and they, they go wrong all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, you're working in usually fairly remote locations. You know, the weather conditions can be crappy. Um, things get damaged, and you're working on noisy pieces of equipment. You're working on a ship, mm. and it's noisy and you're trying to use this little ping of noise that you're sending through the water. You're trying to sit there and listen to that or your equipment is anywhere. Um, so yeah, things, things do go wrong. And I, I guess part of the job is, um, is, is troubleshooting and understanding what's happening. So that's one thing I noticed that the guys that we employ now, um, are far less aware of how the equipment works and the, and the theories behind it. I mean, they'd all understand that, it's acoustics and that we need to know the measure the travel time and the speed of sound. When something's not working, quite often this is part of my job now, is, is we're troubleshooting with our teams and trying to work out what's happening. And you know, you say, well, they say, oh, the echo sounder, we, we ping it and, 
and nothing comes back, right? And first you can say, well, how deep do you think it is, right? You know, is it 2,000 metres and our equipment only works to 200 metres? They say, no, it's not 2,000 metres. Okay, well, what about the, what about the, the noise of the ship? Have you tried turning off um, the ship's echo sounder or, or um, um, the other equipment on the vessel? Have you tried operating with just one engine? That it's almost like IT troubleshooting. It, it is, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, the core part of it is, is that the the guys or the people doing the work, they have to understand, look out, actually look out the window and, and look at what they're on yep. and what's happening around them because it's these environmental factors that are, that are contributing to the to the part of the problem. Mm. And it might be that, that it's too windy, right? There's too much waves and bubbles and turbulence um, in the water to, to for the equipment to work. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of things. Uh, and, and today's guys, I guess, um, what's happened over the years is that Equipment has become, you know, a bit like telephones, mobile phones, right? Things have become easier to use and more user-friendly. You don't have to think about how it works anymore. You just sort of press the button, turn it on, and, hey, it's working, right? Mm. And then when it doesn't work, you're like, oh, what, oh, the hell? what, what will happen here, right? <laughs> I don't know how to fix it because I don't know how it works. Yeah. So I guess that's that's sort of part of, um, part of what I do now is training our guys and, and making sure they understand how things work um, because each job is, is slightly different. You're not always measuring just the depth of the water, right? Yeah. Um, you might be measuring the depth of something that's buried between the beneath the, the seabed, right? Yeah. Similar principle applies, but you've got to understand that, hey, the speed of sound through the water is different from the speed of sound through sand mm. um, or, or, or silt or whatever it is. So, um, yeah, that's the challenge now is, is getting people who come out of school or out of university to understand uh, the theory behind the actual practical application. Yeah, fascinating. Mate, when, you were, when you've been at sea um, and working offshore, like, you know, you sent me some notes before um, the podcast and something that I gravitated towards was that less than 20% of our oceans have been mapped um, and 71% of our earth is covered with water. Mm. And, like, has there been anything, um, you know, that you've kind of gone bizarre that you've seen or, like, something that, has just been like, you know, we can't explain that. Like, I'm just yeah. fascinated because yeah, often I hear interesting stories from people who are the pilots or, um, you know, and I, I'll be honest, I go looking for these types of things because I, I think there's more out there than what we really know. Um, but, yeah, just curious. Yeah, there, there is. I mean, you're always um, – I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by – Looking at the um, looking at the contours of the seabed because it's yep. a lot it's a lot different than the contours of the land. The lands are generally pretty, you know, smooth sloped and has been manicured and, yep. and modified over time. But um, underwater, the under the ocean, the seabed is a lot more diverse. So if you just look out through the um, even locally here at the the port of Melbourne through the through the rip through yep. the heads at yep. uh, Port Phillip Bay, the seabed there is fascinating. There is that was that was my first job working for the port of Melbourne. And there's this huge chasm that comes through the rip that, that no one ever you never see it from the surface, right? Yeah. Um, but when you when you start mapping it, particularly when you map it in detail, um, it, it's fascinating. And it goes from you know twelve meters deep down to like a hundred meters deep. It's yeah, just, wow. It just drops off over a cliff. Um, and not that I've been diving down there, but the divers who have been down they say it's just incredible. You go over the side of this cliff. There's <laughs> kelp and, and and corals and fish everywhere. Um, so yeah, there, there's there's definitely fascinating things. We've been working on projects around um, around offshore installations, offshore drilling platforms, uh, and our clients said, "Oh, when you go there, make sure the gear that you take is manta ray resistant." 
You're like, what do you mean? I've never heard of manta ray resistant yeah. equipment, right? No, yeah. It doesn't say that on the on the brochure, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, you know, there's, there's heaps of manta rays around this platform. Okay, so we're aware of it. You go out there and I think we had a we had an ROV remotely operated vehicle, which is a, it's like a small car, I guess, yep. um, connected to the, to the surface, to the boat by an umbilical or a cable, and we can fly it, drive it, yep. it's got cameras on it. And the guys flying it, I mean, they really have some great stories because they actually see all the stuff that uh, yeah. is flying. There's just these huge manta rays just gliding around it, coming right up to the to the ROV. Totally harmless, right? But yeah. I guess if you run into one of them, it'll do some damage. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, see, seen a few things underwater, but probably the most memorable things that I've seen are actually above the water. So I was working, working in Indonesia and Southeast Asia for a lot of the time. Um, and because you're on a boat, you're not really looking at what's under the water. Over the time, you might be looking at what, what's around you. And um, some of the coastlines and the, the river deltas we went down through, just absolutely incredible. And, and like people pay thousands of dollars to go on cruises and, and trips through these remote islands. And, and we were just doing it for you know, as part of our day job, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, there's been some great places I've seen as part of it, as well as seeing some strange things underwater. Hello friends, when I'm not hitting record here on the podcast, I'm delivering career management and life design workshops in schools. So far we've supported over 45,000 individuals and counting since starting in 2019. We're in 100 schools across Victoria, a few in New South Wales and a couple in Queensland, but we still have so much more to do. Growing our community member base is a huge focus for us, as our mission is to help all young Australians develop meaningful careers and live a fulfilling life. If we can teach young people important career management and life skills early, we hope that these skills will serve them well into their life post-school. If you're a teacher, educator, principal or school leader looking to add a little extra career education and entertainment to the curriculum, check out our workshops at arrivethrive.com.au. You can download our program brochure, learn about our workshops, see our prices and read what teachers and students have said about us and how we can support your community. Thanks again for tuning in. Mate, I'd love you to um, shed a little bit of light on, you know, the stuff we were talking about um, in the kitchen where, you know, the dive team and like what, because you were saying to me that they, you know, they'll spend, was it up to like a month mm. under underwater and there's like living quarters that are, that are underwater and, and that was all – like that blew my mind. Once we, <laughs> you told me that, I was thinking about that for a couple of days. Yeah, that's a, that's, that is a hardcore job, right? So, I mean, I'm a surveyor. We work on boats um, and, and we work with divers. Yep. I'm not a diver myself. Um, and there's different levels of diving. So there's, there's scuba diving like people do um, all over the place. Um, when it comes to um, industrial or commercial diving, there's a couple of different techniques – use but basically the difference is when you're a scuba diver you've got a, a tank on your back and you're totally unconnected to the surface um in commercial diving you're connected to the surface you've got a, a dive helmet on you're getting air um, from the surface you've got communication with the surface uh, a lot of the um if you're diving with using breathing air from the surface there's a real a limited range that you can go down to so you can work down to about 45 or 50 meters yeah um, and the the duration that you spend um at that depth is really limited. You, you have to, you know, I think if you were diving at 50 metres, you've only got sort of less than half an hour bottom time and then you have to return to the surface. So if you're doing a task that takes like, you know, 12 hours to do and one diver can only be down there for half an hour, 
you've got to have a lot of divers that rotate through. Um, so some of the projects we work on, which are beyond that sort of range that you can dive in to 45 or 50 metres, so 100 metres water depth, say, which we're doing a couple of projects like that now, we use saturation divers. So the divers, um, uh, the divers live on the ship, obviously, um, but to work at those depths, they have to be, they have to live in a pressurised um, environment. This is, you can't sort of dive down to 100 metres, then come back up at the surface. You, you get without any treatment, you get the um, nitrox, the bubbles, right? The, sure. the vents, sorry. Yep. Um, so the divers, when you're working beyond 50 metres, you need a specialist ship a specialist piece of equipment with the saturation diving system and the divers um, actually live in a pressurised chamber so they'll come on board the vessel, on board the ship, do their briefings, understand what the tasks they're going to be doing over the next month are and then they enter the living chambers, right? The living chamber is like a couple of big aluminium cans, right? And they uh, have nine or 12 guys, or people, people living in them. They've got, you know, bunks and TV and toilet and things like that um, and uh, when all the guys are in there ready to go then the, the, the door gets closed sealed up um, and they, they it starts to get pressurised uh, they get fed um, and they're adjusting to the, the gases, pressure yeah. That, yeah so if they're working at um, if, the, if the area where they need to work is say 100 metre deep then slowly um, they'll get it's called being blown down they'll get uh, the gases and the pressure will increase um, and they'll get to 100 metres water depth pressure Wow. And they, they get used to that for a while. But then they have to actually get that, – that's still on board the actual ship, right? So they're still sitting in this aluminium can um, on the um, on the deck of the ship and uh, then they have to get in the water. So they basically crawl through um, uh, from their living chamber into a pressurised bell um, and then the, the bell um, – just looks like a bell and uh, it gets lowered down through the centre of the ship or over the side of the ship and it gets lowered down with the guys in it. So they'll have three, typically three divers in the bell, sitting in the bell, gets lowered down to 100 metres water depth. The bell's full of air still because the, the air can't get out, or sorry, the gas can't get out through the um, through the top of the bell. And then when they're down at the working depths, um, one or two of the divers will swim out from the bell, enter the water and um, start doing their task. Their task can be... You know, it could be cleaning, they'll be using some tools underwater, uh, maybe removing bolts um, from, from pipelines, uh, working with the crane and the other the other tools that the vessel has so that the divers are very good because they've got hands and they can use specialised tools, whereas if you're using a crane, it's just a hook that goes in the water, it can't do much. If you're using a remotely operated vehicle, it can do a few more things, but it can't do everything that a diver would do. So the divers will... Um, you know, work down there for, for hours at a time. Uh, they come back into the bell, have a drink and a biscuit and a Tim Tam and then go back out uh, 100 metres below the, below the surface, do their um, eight-hour shift, then come back up to the surface in the bell, uh, crawl out of the bell through the pressurised um, uh, spool or pipe into the back into the living chambers. Next lot of three divers come out of the living chambers into the bell, back down there and continue on. Unbelievable. Mate. So yeah, they, they can do that. I think uh, there's some there's some really sort of um, stringent restrictions placed around how we operate with divers because it is quite a dangerous. Uh, it's much safer now than it than it, than it ever was, um, but it can be dangerous if it's not done properly. So there's a lot of guidelines about how um, yeah, how long the divers can work. Uh, I think 28 days is basically the maximum, and then they've got to come out of 
out of the saturation living chambers. I think there's, there's some requirements on how long they have to spend out of it before they can go back in there. Yep. Um, so yeah, that's a it's a pretty hardcore profession, right? And yeah. you, you can imagine like going on a ship, like I was talking about at the start, um, working for for a couple of months. At least you can see the you know you can see land, or you can you know you can walk out the back deck, or you can get some walk fresh up air. the front of deck, get some <laughs> fresh air. You can imagine living thirty days in this living chamber, yeah, um, with you know eight other guys or, or ten other guys, and and you know if you don't like one of them, yeah, you're not going to be very fun, right? <laughs> uh, so um yeah, it's it's a hardcore. But the guys um, the guys who do do it, they're very fit, um, very skilled, um, get paid well. Um, and and they have those benefits as well. So they work hard for their for their month or whatever it is, um, and then they come off and, and they've got nothing to do for for the for the next one. Wait till the next time they've got to go back. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, mate. Do you feel like before we hit record, you were talking about um, the blue economy concept? Um, can you share with listeners what what that is? And because I've only heard about it a little bit briefly, um, but your take on it and and what you believe um, will occur in the industry and into the future and and how we manage. I suppose the next 30, 30 odd years with the ocean and, yep. and how important that is. Yeah, so I think you, you mentioned before um, that um, around eighty percent of the world's oceans are, are unexplored, haven't mm. been looked at, um, and I think the um, oceans cover like seventy uh, percent of the world's surface, right? So if you do the maths, eighty percent of seventy percent is about fifty percent of the world hasn't really been explored, um, and, and it's not really being utilized for. for what it is, right? On mm-hmm. land, we're farming, we're building building cities, uh, people are going to school, driving around. But half the world, you can't do that, right? And uh, and so it hasn't really been developed so much. There's, in some areas, lots and lots of fishing. Um, some areas, tourism. Some areas, there's oil and, and gas being extracted from the ocean. But it hasn't really been harvested or used like, like we do onshore. So I think that's starting to change now, right, with... Um, particularly with um, renewable energy. So um, offshore wind is really starting to, to kick in uh, throughout Europe, um, places like Taiwan where they get lots of wind, there's lots of demand for energy um, and people don't want wind turbines you know, in their backyard. Uh, that's all moving into the offshore space. So now there's wind turbines getting installed offshore, you know, not too far from shore, but um, you know, in 20 or 30 metres water depth where it's not too deep, not too shallow. Um, and some parts of Europe are generating heaps and heaps of their power um, through this renewable energy source. It hasn't kicked in in Australia yet, but it, it's coming. Um, in Gippsland, there's the Star of the South Wind Farm and some other, um, some other concession areas being released, and the government's released some policies related to offshore wind, um, which is trying to develop the industry in Australia. So that will be a, a, a big um, change for Australia, it's heading in the right direction and that generates heaps of work for, for people like myself um, mapping out where these things are going to go what's the seabed look underneath the seabed what's the sediment type um, what's and that's, the currents that's ensuring like um, less of an environmental impact and as well I'm assuming well that, that's right yeah so there's a, there's a number of things that we would do in relation to the wind, wind farm so firstly we have to someone has to map out where are where are all the winds yep. where are the good areas with lots of wind um, typically the areas with lots of wind also got lots of big waves and big currents. So you've got to measure how big are the waves, yep. when do they happen, same with the currents, so that then um, engineers can design the structures to with, with, withstand the environmental forces. Yep. Um, 
So there's the water, there's also the seabed as well. So what's the seabed made up of? A lot of areas of, of sort of the seabed's fine, soupy silt, which is not that great. Some areas it's really sandy or gravelly or some areas it's rock. Um, so there's a lot of work around that and that's just to install the structures. Then there's all cables that go between them and they have to be mapped out. Do they go across reefs? Can they be buried and protected? So there's, there's a lot of work um, for surveyors that goes into um, planning and then constructing and then um, monitoring, inspecting wind farms um, over their lifespan. So that's one sort of part, probably the biggest one that will happen in the blue economy. Other ones is, is like underwater mining. So that's starting to, to take off in some areas, particularly in areas like Papua New Guinea and the Pacific. We've been working on some projects where our clients are looking for um, nodules, like sort of balls of, of, um, of minerals right. that have collected over millions of years. Uh, Specifically for like renewables and yeah, so the the the, the minerals and I, I don't quote me, I'm not an expert in uh, renewable minerals, but the the minerals that they're getting are quite hard to find on land. Yeah, interesting. Uh, but they're actually they're actually sort of accumulating in 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 um, areas of the ocean where where all the sediment sort of ends up. Right, if it's heavier sediment, it all sort of comes together. The currents roll it all together and then it collects. Right, like the Cook Islands is one area where there's huge um, huge areas of known I think they're called polymetallic nodules or something like that. I'm not sure what minerals in them, but it's very valuable, very yep. rare, and very difficult to get from its, its 5,000 metres you know, yeah. beneath the ocean. <laughs> but if you can work out a way to get that, find it and get it back up to the surface, you know, it's really valuable. And that stuff's used in, in computer parts and, and yeah. batteries for EV cars. Cobalt and all that. That's, yeah. that's the stuff, yeah. Yep. So that sort of thing is, is really starting to take off. And, and along with that is also people are now very much more aware of, you know, protecting the oceans, um, the impacts that if we, you know, if you install a wind farm or, or collecting um, minerals off the seabed, the impacts that that can have on the fish life and then how that impacts fishermen and local communities. So the other part of it is is then making sure that it's done um, responsibly and sustainably. Um, and, and that generates work as well, right? You know, people have to map out what is actually on the seabed there before you know, before someone comes in and sucks yeah. all the minerals out of it uh, and then monitors what they're doing, uh, making sure that it's, it's not impacting things and they're complying with all the regulations and requirements. Yeah. So, yeah, over the, over the next 30 years, I think there'll be a, a big um, sort of a big change and there'll be a lot more work in the offshore sector. Traditionally, it's been you know, fishing, tourism, um, oil and gas, um, but renewables, um, particularly renewable energy, will, will make up a big, a big part of it going forward. Yeah, fascinating. What what do you think will be because AI is starting to disrupt a lot of industries? Ha, are you seeing it play out in your space? Because I'm assuming technology advances very quickly in your space with how we go about measuring and gaining data. Mm-hmm. Um, what's something that you've noticed recently, or something that you think is going to happen um, with the impact of of AI, and as that evolves? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm not not sure if you class it as AI. I guess it is. Um, but what has happened in the industry in the last probably the last two or three years? I mean, it happened before this, but but now has really started to take hold. Is the use of um, unmanned vessels. So even big ships, you know, 50, 60 meter long, they're being built now to be unmanned and Whoa. controlled remotely. Yeah. Wow. Um, so they're not. Uh, 
mean, this is this is the AR part of it. They can be autonomous, so you can set uh, the vessel to go on a mission. We want to, you know, go from point A to point B. When you get to point B, deploy this sensor here, turn it on, activate it, start recording data. We're going to go point C, then point D, and then when you get to point E, recover the sensor and stop recording. Yep. Um, so we're doing that now. Uh, we have a couple of um, unmanned vessels that are um, being piloted from control centers in different parts of the world, and, and that's that's a really cool thing. And that's that is, you know, I'm, I'm not sure whether it's it is going to be there for the long term. Um, the idea behind it is that you have less people working offshore. Yeah. Um, people don't have to be away from their friends and family for months at a time. Um, it's safer if they're working in an office than yep. if they're on a on a ship. Does that eliminate? I'm assuming that eliminates like human error as well, with like, like uh, potential accidents and things like that. And yeah, like I don't know too much about the space, but I feel like whenever there's like a, I don't know, like a, a ship or something that has had an accident, it's like in the news and uh, absolutely, yeah. there's always like the a potential for human error. Like, so that's that's the big driver, right? Uh, yep. Whether it's whether the cause of the incident is human error or, or some other yep. factor, um, it doesn't really matter. But the, the impact is that you know. People get injured. People yeah. might lose their lives, um, and if that if that happens, you know that particularly the big the big customers, all customers, I guess it impacts. But our big customers, you Exxon Mobil's and Shells and Chevron and Woodside sort of companies, they take you know any injury to any person incredibly serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and if there's any way that they can reduce the risk of people getting injured, um, working in a in a you know it's not. The, the, you know, it's not exactly the the safest environment. Um, it is a safe environment, but it, it, it does has its have its hazards. So, if there's any way that they can reduce the risk to, to people working on their projects, then they'll do it. Yeah, it does come at a cost, I think, uh, and, and and that's where the industry is grappling with at the moment. Is um, you know, this you would think that okay, we're not have people working off there and offshore anymore should cost us less, right? But it's cost someone you know millions of dollars to develop this technology, yeah. and that needs to be paid back. Um, so it's not necessarily a cost saving, but it's a it's a you know it's a saving in terms of a reduction of risk. Um, it becomes a cost saving when you have multiple vessels going out there. So if you've got five unmanned vessels, they can still all be sort of controlled by the same team that would operate one manned vessel offshore. Mm. Uh, and that's that that is starting to happen. So that's probably the biggest thing um, for us as uh, our company. We're starting to you know, starting to get into it, we realise that that is the way forward. Not everything can be done with an unmanned vessel. There's lots of things that require, you know, people's hands to get in there and fix things. And, and like I was saying before, things always go wrong or they come loose or, or job tasks change when you're offshore. Um, so having um, people on board is, is still going to happen in the future, but I think it'll probably happen, um, you know, be, be reduced going forward, yeah. Yeah, fascinating, mate. That's so interesting. Like I find... You know, I, heard, I was listening, um, I was at a conference uh, last year actually and there was someone talking about um, just the, the future of aviation and there's going to be, you know, unmanned flight control <laughs> towers soon and and I just assumed like it, it, it's the similar kind of vein, like, you know, when there's a machine, um, you know, unmanned and there's specific programs that you can develop in order for it to be more effective, safer, yep. yeah, it's a fascinating time that we live in. Yeah, I guess that that's that would you know in, in aviation and a lot of some of the errors are from from human errors, uh, and yeah, you can you will be able to, and I'm sure people are already doing it, training 
the software so that uh, you know the the error rate where it was previously might have been one percent is now zero point zero 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 one percent. So yeah, it, it will happen and it'll affect not just our industry but yeah, aviation and, and yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah, mate. In terms of um, skill sets, so what I've been hearing from from your journey, like maths, science, um, critical problem solving analytical thinking, being able to like observe your surroundings and kind of put them all together to develop a solution. What are some other skill sets that you think are really important for people wanting to, to get into the industry or, or, or mindsets as well? Yeah, so I think um, uh, probably the, the biggest one that I'd take away is that when you're working on these work sites, uh, which are remote, you're working with a team, you, you very rarely – Never, I would say, working by yourself, right? Yep. So firstly, you have to be able to work in a team and you have to be happy working in a team. The other thing that happens if you're working, like I was saying before, if you're in a, in a saturation diving living chamber with 10 other people and you don't get along with them, it's not going to be very fun, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got to be able to, um, to get along with people, understand that everyone's different and um, you know, they may have a different background for you. It's, it's the offshore industry, whether you're a surveyor or a diver or you know sailor, whatever it is, is a global industry, and so you're quite often working on a job site with you might be the only Australian on, on the job site, right? Well, you could be on another one where there's 100, everyone's Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, but quite often you're working with people from Europe, you know, the Americas, Southeast Asia, uh, wherever, and everyone's got to get along. They all may all speak different languages. They've all got different backgrounds. You're getting paid differently. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting along and working with as a team and putting your, you know, your differences aside, that's probably the most most critical thing. Um, and in, in you know, touch wood, we've we've been fairly lucky. The people that we employ, you know, realise that and are pretty good natured and get along with people. But there are, you do get occasions where you know someone will come on a job and they'll they'll cause you know piss piss everyone off, right? Yep. And you've got to get rid of the guy from the job site, right? Yep. If we don't get rid of this guy, he might be great at his job, but he just can't get along with everyone. Yeah. So those soft skills that yeah, it's the soft skills, right? You know, the te- technical stuff is good, and it's great to have that. But when you're working on these job sites, which are pretty remote, and you know, you can't go home at the end of the day and chill out, or yep. you know, go for a run and, and blow it all off or anything, you've got to be able to manage yourself and, and make sure that you get along with people. You don't upset people. You're living in these facilities, you know, you got to keep things clean and tidy and. and consider all the other people around you on these work sites. Yeah. That's probably probably the main thing, I think, yeah. Yeah, good insight. And, mate, now that you're, you've, you've transitioned in your own role, um, what does your day-to-day look like in, in your current role? Yeah, so now, um, I, like I mentioned before, I don't really go offshore anymore. Uh, I haven't since about, I don't know, 2014, something like yep. that. So it's been about 10 years. And my day now is sort of overlooking our group. So I look over um, – our group of companies and the survey operations with all, all those groups. So we have company in Malaysia, company in Indonesia, um, operations in Australia, Papua New Guinea, Middle East, and we've got survey teams working in all those locations and, and other locations as well. So my my role now is sort of we get we get reports in from all those vessels, ships working all over the place each day, looking at those reports, checking yeah, everything's okay there. Um, Sometimes things are not okay and we'll get a phone call in the middle of the night or email saying, oh, this thing's not working and can't fix it. Got any ideas? Um, so some of it's technical support. Um, some of it is um, – most of it actually is, is like uh, talking to clients, drumming up work um, and 
putting proposals together to solve clients' problems mm-hmm. uh, using the experience that we've had, you know, working all over the place. Uh, a client will come to you and say, oh, we've got this, uh, we want to build a, a power plant on a river in Papua New Guinea. Uh, what information do we need, right? And they say, well, you probably need a bit of this, you need some currents yeah. and you, you need some rainfall data and you'll need some some bathymetry and, you, you know, we can do parts of it. Some parts of it you'll need to go to another company yep. to, um, to get their advice. So that's probably probably takes up you know, 70% of my work nowadays. Um, it's probably 70% commercial and proposals and, and business development and uh, and 30% is sort of a bit more technical. Uh, I guess, you know, um, when we started our company, um, I was sort of like quite the technical one. Uh, actually, we founded our company with three people and we were all, we're all pretty technical. Yep. Uh, we didn't have, you know, an accounts guy or, um, you know, marketing person. Um, and that's where we, we really struggled. We, we, we missed those skills. We were all, all great technically, yep. great at talking, great at, you know, convincing someone we knew what we were doing. Um, but, you know, and, and when you're a technical person, you just love, you just want to go out there and do that job, right? Yep. And you forget, hang on, I've got to get paid for it. I've got to put an invoice in. I've got to make sure <laughs> yep. I, 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 you know, follow their uh, invoice submission procedure. And then, you know, you might do all that uh, and you and you still you still got to get paid as well, right? And, and chasing up clients to pay you uh, another part of the job, which is which still, unfortunately, we have to do. Um, and, and, yeah, that's probably that probably takes up 10% of the time yeah. as well, yeah. Do you find um, just curious because I often find my biggest clients are the longest to pay. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, mate, um, thanks so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. Um, a little segment that we ask all of our guests um, is the "What are you roaring about?" So I'll play Danny's uh, theme music. I'm brewing. I'm yeah. I'm soaking it up. Taco, just thought I'd drop you a late night surprise for you. <laughs> I'm not sure if you can hear the sizzling. I'm just sort of stewing on that. Thoughts? I'm roaring. So, Dave, what's uh, what's making you roar at the moment, mate? Um, probably the simple things in my life, right? Uh, I spent I spent 13 years living overseas and running around like a headless chicken, you know, travelling and, and 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 pretty hectic. And now I'm back here in um, in Mornington. I sort of tend to enjoy and. and make the most and get the most enjoyment out of little things that are happening. Uh, so like, like just this morning, actually, um, just looked at my back lawn and he's absolutely magnificent. Right? <laughs> it just had a couple of days of rain. It is, and I, and I, I watered it and, and yeah. um, fertilised it a couple of weeks ago. So take a little bit of pride in, in the back lawn and Fantastic. it is looking magnificent. The kids love it. Ready for uh, backyard cricket season. Ready for a bit of backyard <laughs> cricket season, yeah, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's it. I'll keep reminding my wife about it. Gee, that, gee, that lawn looks good, doesn't it? You know, she's like, yeah, 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 I've seen it all before. Uh, so, yeah, the, the little things like that, uh, yeah. I guess, uh, that's that gets me going. My kids are just taught my kids to ride their bike um, and, and little things like that, watching them uh, work out how to do it, uh, that sort of gets you going. And, and I guess as you get older and, um, and a bit more mature, you're not so what gets you roaring. It's not work stuff. It's those yep. little things, um, little things that make you happy personally or, or you know, watching your kids do something, uh, seeing them achieve something, yeah. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Is there a way that people can um, learn more about um, Bing Tang Subsea and um, was it Shelf Sea as well? 
Yeah, sub sure. C. So yeah, yeah Bintang Sub C is our, our company in um, that does the surveying work. So we have a LinkedIn page, our Instagram page as well, so yep. you can search for those. And Shelf Sub is our sort of parent company, and those guys uh, handle all the diving and the, and the bigger projects for our group. Shelf Sub also have a LinkedIn page, and um, yeah, jump on it and see what's happening. Yeah, perfect, mate. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure. Really Thanks appreciate time. it.